good to have you with us. Thanks for foregoing, enjoying this beautiful day outside to be in here with us for an hour and a half, and uh, we pray that it will bless you as much as it's a blessing to have you with us, and uh, we'd love to to tell you what a blessing it is to have you with us, and thank you for being with us. And um, if you open your bulletins there, you see a little new to West Hills card. If you would be so kind, if you're, if you're new if, or, or if you've been here a little while and maybe haven't filled that out yet, uh, we'd love to just have a record of your attendance, your contact info, to be able to connect with you uh, afterward. If you take it to the info bar after the service, we'll give you a free, uh, super nice little travel coffee mug um, as, a, as a token of our appreciation uh, for you being with us. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Romans 1.16 is one of the most important verses in all the Bible, according to the Apostle Paul and according to God's inspired word, the gospel, the power of salvation, the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. That means three things for us this morning. It means that people need saving from something. That's implied. Number two, it means that God has provided the power for our salvation in the form of an announcement. The word gospel literally means good news, good message. And number three, that all anyone and everyone has to do is simply believe in the gospel and they will be saved. If that's true, then it undoubtedly makes the gospel more than just good news. It's the best news. It's the most essential, urgent news imaginable for everyone to not only hear, but to believe in order to be saved. The bad news, I'm sad to report this morning, is I'm convinced that a majority of non-Christians, those outside the Christian faith, have little to no idea what the gospel is. I wanted to know for sure, so I decided to ask some of them this past week in preparation for this sermon. I, I called, texted, Facebook messaged uh, most of the family and friends that I know who are either unbelievers or at least I know they're unchurched. Or unengaged and simply asked, what is your understanding of the gospel, the good news, according to Christianity? About half of them didn't respond. Not a great sign. And of the ones who did, only about 25% of them even got close to the gospel that I'm going to be announcing to you this morning. Three quarters weren't even in the ballpark. They said things like, quote, the gospel is the words of the Bible. Another said that the gospel is the teachings that are in the Bible. Another said, I think of the gospel as what the Bible tells us about how to live. Another said the gospel is love. It's a way of life and everyone needs a way of life. It's the way of love, the golden rule. Similarly, another said, the gospel is the moral compass that one should follow to be a good Christian, detailing how to live one's best life 
summed up by the phrase, do unto others as you would like them to do to you. Another said the gospel is the teachings of Jesus, the stories of Jesus, the gospel is the cosmic obligation to spread the teachings of Jesus to others. Now keep in mind, this is the pastor's family and friends. So most of these people I've probably already preached at before they even responded. And if I hadn't before, I certainly took the opportunity with many of them this past week. And my follow-up replies, text, got the chance to actually share. Do you mind if I share the, the, the biblical gospel with you? So you can just imagine how your friends, family would reply. But I just encourage you, challenge you this morning, don't imagine Ask them. Ask them this morning. I won't be offended if you pull out your, your phone right now. I want to text them right now. Ask, what is the gospel? And then just listen to the answers that you get. And I would be shocked if your friends are any more enlightened than mine are. If you get any better percentage than about 25% that actually know what the gospel is and just don't believe it. I, in the American church, we send missionaries to places like Senegal and Japan and Sweden and Bolivia that we'll hear about this morning because we like to tell ourselves that everyone around us obviously already knows the gospel, the century, central message of Christianity, and so if they're not already a Christian, they must just not be interested. But friends, I'm here to tell you this morning, they don't know. Most of them don't know. 75%. Ask your unbelieving, unchurched friends this week. Most of them will tell you that the gospel has something to do with how you are supposed to live. 75%. That's bad news. But the news gets even worse than that. You're thinking, man, I thought this was a sermon about the good news. When are we getting to that? We're getting to that. I, I, I seriously wonder whether a majority of the self-professing Christians in our world today don't know the gospel either. Or at the very least, whether they couldn't articulate the gospel, couldn't put it into words. Remember, the gospel is news. It's a message. It's an announcement. And so we can just go ahead and throw... St. Thomas, or sorry, St. Francis of Assisi's famous advice that we ought to preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. You can just throw that where it belongs in the garbage because you cannot preach the gospel with just your actions any more than you can eat without food, shower without water, golf without clubs. News requires words. Our lives can and should confirm and conform to the truth of the gospel. Our actions can either back up or deny evidence, whether we truly believe in the gospel or not. But the gospel itself, the good news itself is just that. It is news. It's words. It's a message. What news? What words? What message? If I had called or texted you this week, if I put you on the spot right now, this morning, said, who wants to stand up 
and share the gospel with the rest of God's people, 50 words or less, could you do it? Good. Good. Well, for sake of time, I'm not going to make you. I trust that you could, those of you who were confident. Praise God. I'm just going to give it to you. I'm going to give you the gospel in just 12 words this morning. 12 words. If you can remember 12 words, you can remember the gospel. When Christians are polled and asked, why don't you share your faith more often with others? The number one reason is fear. Now, that could be fear of being judged, of offending someone, of losing a friendship, but it could also be, maybe just as often, the fear of not knowing what to say, right? Not having the right words. The number four excuse for not sharing is I'm unequipped. I don't know how to share the gospel. May that not be said of any West Hillian after this morning. So I want to equip you over the next 30 or so minutes to share the gospel. If you can remember 12 words. And actually four of them are the same little word, is. So it's really eight words. If you can remember eight words, you can remember the gospel and remember how to share it with someone else. First, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the good news of who you are and what you've done for us in the gift of your Son, Jesus. God, if there's anyone this morning here who has not trusted, who maybe doesn't even know, or one of that 75%, couldn't even articulate, put into words the message. They don't know it. God, I, I thank you for bringing them here in your providence this morning, that this is where you have them, that this is the sermon, the message that they need to hear, that everyone needs to hear. It's the power of you, of God, for salvation to everyone who would believe. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do this morning what only you can do. It's not uh, persuasive words of, of me. It's not some appeal to emotion by a gifted speaker. The only way that hearts get changed is by your Holy Spirit blowing where it will and stirring the hearts and affections of your people that you would call to yourself. Your word tells us we can't come to you unless you call us. And Father, I pray that you would call a sinner to yourself this morning through the good news of the gospel, your gospel, your good news. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are lots of helpful resources out there for helping us know how to share the gospel. I'm going to borrow and adapt and combine two of them this morning for you called the Four Spiritual Laws and the Romans Road. And so uh, I'm going I'm to kind of outline and I'm going to do some diagramming for you, follow the Four Spiritual Laws, and then I'm going to kind of put that together with the Romans Road is, is uh, kind of the passages that we're going to be expositing and walking through this morning. Um. If you boil the gospel down to its most basic, irreducible component parts, 
there are essentially four component truths, four ingredients, if you will, of what have to be there in order to have a complete gospel. Right? If, you, if you want to bake a cake, you got to have flour and sugar and eggs and milk, right? Maybe, I don't know, I don't bake. Do you have to have butter? You, I, I don't know what ingredients go. I don't bake, I preach. And I know what goes into the gospel. Four ingredients. If you want to bake a gospel cake, you need four things. Number one, you need to know that God is supreme. God is supreme. God has to be the starting point of the good news according to the Bible. You got no God, you got no gospel. There is no good news without the supremacy of God, the Father Almighty. Now that might seem pretty obvious to most of us, but you would be shocked how many people begin their gospel presentations. You ask a Christian, what's the gospel? And they'll begin with some news about how terrible we are as sinners, which is true. Or they might even jump right past that, straight to Jesus on the cross. What's the good news? That Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's true. We're going to get there. That's important. That's not the starting point of the gospel. I mean, you tell me that, and I'm an unbeliever. I've got all sorts of questions. Who's Jesus? What is a cross? I mean, I know what a cross is, but why did he do that? And why did he have to, you know? So before we get to any of that, we simply can't take for granted that people these days believe in God as a starting point, much less the supremacy of God, the all-surpassing greatness of God. God as he actually is, as revealed to us in his word, People need to know that. We need to tell them that. The good news that there really is a God and that he's even better than they could even ever imagine. He is supreme in every way. He is of the highest quality, degree, character, importance. Supreme means greatest, utmost, paramount. God's supreme. And so we need to begin our journey there. Our journey down the Romans Road, we begin in chapter 1. Chapter 1, the Apostle Paul essentially uh, wrote the book of Romans as a catechesis of sorts. He's explaining and doctrinating the church in Rome into the X's and O's of salvation. And so he hits them right off the bat in verse 16 with that verse, that great framing verse that I already read for you. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then Paul's going to spend the next 10 chapters or so outlining and detailing that good news of Christianity for us. And for the sake of time, we're just going to pull out a few brief excerpts this morning. Romans 1, we'll start in chapter 18, uh, verse 18 now. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that all are without excuse. It might seem odd to begin the good news with the wrath of God against sin. I want to try and convince you this morning that it's a really good thing that God hates sin so much. Because if he didn't, he wouldn't love you and me. 
to the extent that he does. How loving of a father would I be to my two children if I sat there and watched my kids hit each other, beat each other up, cuss each other out, and I, I was just kind of unfazed, unconcerned. It is good that God loves us, and God's loving us means that he hates anything that threatens us. Our sin is a threat to us. But Romans 1 isn't so much about us, it's about God. Specifically, we see three key things about God in the passage I just read for you. It's still up on the screen. Number one, God's presence is prominent. God's presence is prominent. In other words, it's obvious that God exists. Paul says it's, it's plain to us because God has shown it to us. Everyone is without excuse, for, at least for believing that there is a God. We all know it deep down. If, if, if you've just experienced the world, the beauty, the splendor, the glory, I mean, you know deep down there's a God. Number two, God's power is preeminent. His presence is prominent. His power is preeminent. In other words, all-surpassing. God is great. God's power is eternal, Romans 1 says. His nature is divine, of surpassing excellence. God is, is all-surpassing and great. And number three, because he is that, and he alone is God, then his prerogatives are primary. His presence is prominent, his power is preeminent, his prerogatives are primary, lots of Ps. In other words, what God says goes. God's in charge. God alone gets to define what is ungodliness and unrighteousness. God is the standard of ungodliness. God is capital R, righteousness. He's the standard of unrighteousness because he alone is God. I think Exodus 15.11 captures this well. Exodus 15.11, you should have found also in your bulletins this morning a little business card entitled The Gospel. Again, let it not be said of anyone at West Hills that you are unequipped for sharing the gospel. I want to make it super easy for you. I encourage you this morning to put that in, in your pocket, in your wallet, in your purse, tape it to your laptop when you get home, somewhere that you will see it regularly, and at the very least it will remind you to pray for opportunities to witness to others, because I believe that if we ask God to open doors for us to share his good news, he wants people to hear it, and he will honor that, and he will do it. More precisely, he will just make you a, a, more aware of the opportunities that are already there every single day that we blow right past, don't take advantage of. So we need to pray, but we also need to be ready, we need to be equipped. First Peter 3.15 instructs us to be prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for, the reason, for a reason <clears throat> for the hope that is within you. And that's what this card is, and that's what this sermon is. It's a very simple explanation, reminder of the gospel of the hope that is in you if you're a believer in Jesus. You'll notice I changed some of the wording of the four ingredients there on the card to try and make it more accessible to uh, an unbeliever. Again, my hope is that this card can not only help remind you of the gospel, that as you are sharing it with someone else, you might actually give them that card. Look, we, we, we printed plenty of those cards. We've got extras. We'll just keep replenishing you. Use it. Give it away. Give it away. Use, it, use that as a simple uh, evangelistic tool to help you share the good news this week. 
But Exodus 15.11 is a great summary verse of God's supremacy. You know, if you don't have time to walk someone through the whole four verses of Romans 1 that we just covered, if you just got to take them to one verse, take them to Exodus 15.11. God's holiness declares, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? God is holy. God is set apart. We talked about that in sermon number two, focusing on God in this series. By the way, you're going to notice this morning that there's quite a bit of repetition in these four spiritual laws with an, an overlap with the essentials that we've already covered thus far in the series. Week two on God, week three on humanity, week four on God's plan, week five on Jesus. They were all sort of these building blocks that, we've been, that we're going to put together assemble this morning to tell one cohesive story, news, announcement, the gospel. But rather than recap all of what God's holiness means, the last thing I do want to offer you here before we move on, and I want to try and do with each of these four gospel ingredients this morning, quickly explain why each of, each of these parts of the gospel is good news for you and me and to the unbeliever that I'm trying to equip you this morning to go and reach with the gospel this week. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but, but Christianity has gotten a lot of bad press for many years now. Like when most people outside the church hear Christianity, they don't immediately think good news, unfortunately. They think, oftentimes, many of them think bad news judgment, hypocrisy, condemnation. First Peter 3 didn't say be prepared to defend the hostility in you, but the hope in you. And on a practical level, we all know that you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar, right? And so we Christians of all people, we ought to be the most hope-filled people around. And so I want, I want us to consider together what each of these gospel ingredients has to offer us in the way of hope why it's such good news. It's good to know that God is supreme because for starters, number one, that means that there is a God who purposefully created you and who willingly loves you. If the alternative narrative is that I am just the product of, of some cold, unguided, blind, brutal process of evolution, I'm, I'm just a slightly more well-adapted version of the chimp sitting in the zoo, with no intrinsic dignity or worth, more than an animal, and there's nothing out there and no one greater in the universe out there that cares about me, my sad little life. When I die, I'm going to turn to dirt and get eaten by worms. Then, yeah, if that's the alternative, you better believe I want Christianity to be true. That, that starts to feel like good news to me. And I'm convinced that most people, if they knew how good it was, they would want it to be true. And so let's don't fool ourselves into, into, or let Satan deceive us into the insecurity of thinking, well, I don't want to offend or, you know, it, because people are dying for, Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in every human heart. We all long for more than just this life. And we, we know it. We have it. We have the hope of eternal life. And they want it. 
Many are hungry, desperate for it. We need to tell them. It's good news. I want to believe that I was purposely created by a God who chooses to love me, supremely cares for me. I want that to be true. It's good news. Related, number two, it's good that God is supreme because it offers us, God offers us something, someone himself who is supremely worthy of our devotion and worship. Listen, we were all made to worship. We're, we're worshiping creatures. If you're not worshiping God, if you're an unbelieving friend, neighbor, coworker, if they're not worshiping God, you can rest assured they are worshiping something, someone else. Don't ever let anyone tell you they're not religious. Yes, they are. Everyone is religious. Their religion might just not be one of the organized ones right, with, a, with a label. They might not come to church for it. But everyone's religious. Everyone worships. If you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping something other than, lesser than God. But coming to recognize that God is supreme means that you get the joy of worshiping the highest, greatest, most worship-worthy being in all the universe, the one who created us and created us to worship him in the first place. That's good news. And finally, number three, it's good that God is supreme because it means that you and I don't have to be. Most common replacement for God is ourselves. If you're not exalting him, you're probably unconsciously living for magnifying yourself. And that is a weight. Being the center of the universe is a weight that no human was designed to bear. I think it's good to let God be God because it means I don't have to be supreme, freed from enslavement to serving and living for myself. Gospel ingredient number two, humanity is sinful. God is supreme. Humanity is sinful. We can flip ahead now to Romans chapter 3. We read in verses 10 through 12 and verse 23, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We said that if God is supreme, that means he gets to call the shots. His prerogatives are primary, but most of the time you and I and sinners in the world who are far from God we want to be the ones calling the shots. We live like we're the center of existence, like we are God, and thus we become gods unto ourselves. We reject God as God over us, and we follow our own ways instead of his. The Bible calls this sin, very simply. And according to Isaiah 59, verse 2, the verse on your card there, your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. So let me give you another equipping tool here, a visual tool. It's not on your cards, not in your bulletins, but you might want to draw it on your bulletins this morning. Many of the people you might share the gospel with might be more visual learners. So here's a visual tool for you. Picture of the situation that you and I find ourselves in. There is a God, and he's holy. He's set apart. He's, he's unapproachable in his perfection by sinful man. 
in our sins, as Isaiah just told us, our sins have made a separation between us and God. Again, we covered humanity's sinfulness at length in sermon number three in this series, and so I'm not going to belabor it here this morning, but in my experience, you don't have to when you share the gospel with unbelievers. Most of us know, even unbelievers know inherently, instinctively, that there really is such a thing as right and wrong, objective right and wrong, not just subjective preferences of what feels good to me, my right and my wrong, but like good and evil. Most people still acknowledge that, even if they might define right from wrong, good from evil differently than some of us in the church might. That's Romans 2. Romans 2, by the way, God has written his law on every human heart, our conscience, so that we are all even further without excuse for our failure to turn from our sin and turn to God. But not only do we all nearly universally recognize the existence of good and evil, but we all also nearly universally admit, both the Christian and the, and the non-Christian, this is the one thing we all seem to agree on, is that we were all at times guilty of doing the wrong instead of doing the right. I asked you last Sunday to raise your hand if you were perfect, and I got exactly zero hands. That's good. You're, you're honest. You know yourselves. Guess what? If we had filled the room with unbelievers, I think I would have gotten the same response. Again, ask, ask your unbelieving friends this week, are you perfect? Most of them will laugh at you. Well, of course I'm not. The problem is that most unbelievers don't realize that, that perfection really is God's standard for us. As Jesus clearly identifies it in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If, you're, if your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you're good. You're good to go. Ticket to heaven, punched. It makes sense because if you ask them, you know, what, what is heaven like? Even if you don't believe in heaven, you know, let's just hypothetically for a minute, what, what, if there was a heaven, what, what would it be like? What would you want it to be like? Most people, if, if they could just play along, like, yeah, okay, I mean, if there was a heaven, I, I would want it to be perfect, right? And yet, we think that somehow we're going to get in by simply being a little better person than their neighbor across the street or better than most people. But this is where you and I get to tell them the good news concerning sin. You say, wait a minute, how can our sinfulness in any sense be good news? Well, for starters, if there really is a God and if our sin really does separate us from him, then admitting our sin is, of course, really good, important news, a, a good step to do. You can't fix a problem if, if you don't know that you have it, right? So our acknowledging that we are sinful is really important. But can our sin itself in any way be thought of as good? That's an interesting question. Some of you think, well, I thought sin was by definition not good. And that is, of course, true. But I want to argue this morning that to the extent that our sin makes us equally aware, ought to make us equally aware of our need for a Savior, to the extent that it, our sin forces us to recognize that there's something wrong with us, 
and that we want it. We, we need it to be fixed. And yet we are wholly unable to fix it on our own that if we're going to be rescued and restored and reconciled to a holy, perfect God, that he has got to be the one to do the saving to the extent that our sin convicts us of that and drives us back into the arms of a Savior, then our sin can be a good thing. In 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul describes his own wrestling with a thorn in the flesh. It's probably a sin struggle of some kind. And he writes, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, Paul says, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. To the extent that our sin, our weaknesses, force us to admit that we are not strong, not strong enough, whether we're not good enough to make it into heaven on our own merit. And they force us, our sin forces us to humbly rely instead on the undeserved grace and mercy of a Savior. And God can and does even use our sin as a good thing in our lives. But it's only good. Sin is only good for us if number three... Jesus is your Savior. Jesus is Savior. God is supreme. Man is sinful, but Jesus is Savior. We go back to the Romans road again, now in chapters 5, 6, and 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Wow. Why is it such good news that Jesus saves us? I count at least nine reasons in those six short verses. Ready? Number one, it's good news that Jesus is our Savior because it proves God's love for us. Paul says God shows his love for us in this. Jesus didn't have to die for us, friends. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord willingly for you. He did it out of love for you. Number two, Jesus saving us means that we don't have to clean up our act before we can come to God. We've all probably heard that at some point. Maybe you've said that at some point. I hope long ago in your past. One day I'll straighten my life out and then maybe I'll get back to church and I'll start praying again and I'll get back in the Bible 
Listen, that's like saying, you know, one day I'm going to get around to, to washing my car and then I'll be able to take it to the car wash you know, without it being embarrassing how dirty it is, right? That's kind of the whole point. That's kind of what you pay for at the car wash, isn't it? You take it to the car wash for the cleaning. You come to Jesus for the cleaning. It's like that great lyric from the hymn we sing, Come Ye Sinners. If you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. Because listen, you ain't cleaning yourself up. You're not getting clean without him. You need Jesus for your cleaning. No, while we were yet sinners, still sinners, Christ died for you. It's the gospel. And number three, that's such good news because it means Jesus died the death that you deserved. Paul says he died for us in our place. Jesus is our substitutionary sacrifice. He tells us in 623, the wages of our sin, what God rightfully owed us by virtue of our sin, because of our disobedience, was death, eternal death and separation from God. But Jesus saved us by dying for us on the cross. That's the good news. And number four, by doing so, Jesus declared us righteous. Paul, Paul writes, we have now been justified. Justified means considered, counted, deemed righteous. Our salvation isn't based on our being righteous. Praise God. Otherwise, none of us would be saved, right? None is righteous. No, not one. We already read it. Rather, God credits Jesus' righteousness to your spiritual bank account. You had nothing. Negative balance. You owed your life. Like, you owed it all. I mean, we're sinful to our core. We had a negative balance. Not only is it wiped out, you've got the spiritual, or the black Visa card, or whatever the one is where you got no credit limit. I just bought a new car. They're like, oh yeah, I mean, if you got like, you know, the black car, you can just put the whole thing down on the card. I'm like, that's what you've got spiritually because of Jesus in your bank account. All the righteousness of Christ. Number five, chapter five, verses nine and 10, because Jesus saves us, we are no longer under God's wrath. We have now been reconciled to God. Remember, this is what the visual looked like on point number two. Separate, our sin separates us from a holy, a perfect God. Here's what it looks like now because of Jesus. He's the bridge. He's the bridge, that our mediator, our intercessor. The Bible uses all, uses all sorts of fancy theological words. He's a bridge. Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's the only way, the only bridge to get you back to God. And the good news just keeps getting even better because number six, Jesus didn't stay dead. Paul says, look, if we've been reconciled by his death, how much more shall we be saved by his life? 
Jesus died to free us from the penalty of sin, death, hell, separation from God, and then he rose again three days later to free us from the very power of sin as well. God now offers you this morning new life in Christ. It starts with progressive victory over sin in this life, but it culminates in our being freed from even the presence of sin in the life to come, eternal life with Christ in heaven. That's great news. And number seven, the best part of all is that God's offer of salvation in Christ to you is totally free. It's totally free. I say there's no such thing as a free lunch in this life. That's true of everything else except the most important thing in your life, your salvation, and it's totally free for you. It cost him everything so that it could cost you nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's all you need. Paul says, salvation is the free gift of God. Listen, you can't buy a gift that someone gives you, can you? If you buy it, what's it called? A purchase. (laughs) It's not a gift anymore. It ceases to be a gift the minute you buy it. gift simply has to be received, and that's exactly what faith is. It's receiving. We're going to end with that in a moment. Point number four, faith is simply receiving the gift that God has purchased for you with the blood of his son Jesus, as we sang about. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Number eight, you need this gift. You want this gift because it's the greatest gift imaginable. It's the free gift Specifically, of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6.23. Eternal, by the way, means forever. It means God doesn't weigh your good deeds against your bad deeds and then calculate you know, how to have you split time between heaven and hell. He doesn't give you some time to figure things out in purgatory. He doesn't set up different neighborhoods in heaven depending on how good you were. No, because of your right standing with God the Father, because it was established for you by Jesus, that means that you have not just some life now, not just a lot of life now, you have eternal life in Christ. And lastly, that means, number nine, there is no more condemnation for those in Christ, and there is no more separation. No condemnation, no separation. Nothing can now separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Is that enough good news for you? Do you you need any more reasons to trust that it is really, really good, important news that Jesus is Savior and wants to save you, if he hasn't already. I didn't even mention John 3.16. It's the verse that I put on your uh, gospel cards for point number three. But it's a good transition to point number four, our final gospel ingredient. Faith is sufficient. God is supreme. Humanity is sinful. Jesus is Savior. Faith is sufficient. 
Maybe you notice the alliteration there. I'm trying to make it as easy as possible for you to be equipped to remember this. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever tries his hardest to be a good person. Some of you laughed. That whosoever is a member in good standing with her local church. That whosoever what? Believes. Whosoever believes in him, in Jesus, shall not perish but have everlasting life. Ephesians 2.8 this is the faith is sufficient verse that I printed for point number four on your cards. By grace you have been saved through baptism. You've been saved through tithing, through church attendance, through what? Through faith. By grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. There's the gift again. It's almost like God knew that 75% of us were going to try and convince ourselves that we must play some part in our own salvation. That somehow it's good news, a way of life, a bunch of teachings that we're supposed to follow is somehow good news. Jesus says, Unless you did it better than the Pharisees, it's not good news for you. That's not the good news. God says, it's not your own doing, lest anyone should boast. It's grace is made applicable to you, saving to you, simply through faith. Receiving. As our last stop on the Romans road, chapter 10, declares to us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. So friends, in closing, I just ask you this morning, invite you, have you called on the name of the Lord for your salvation this morning? Have you trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your soul? Remember the diagram, God, us, Jesus, bridge. None of it matters if you don't walk across. Faith means stepping out on the bridge. It means trusting in Jesus to be your way to God the Father. Do that this morning and you will be saved. If you have then let me ask you a different question as we close. Are you calling others to call on the same name of Jesus that you did for their salvation? The Romans 10 passage 
we just finished with, concludes this way. Paul says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Not the actions, not maybe if you help enough old ladies across the street, someone will think, wow, Jesus must have died for my sins. It's an announcement that they need to hear. They need to hear, are we telling them, church? God is supreme, we are sinful, but Jesus is Savior, and faith is sufficient. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation unto all who believe. Amen.